Real quick, though, how do you want to be introduced? Uh, I don't have a preference, whatever. I'm actually curious to hear what you say, and then I'll uh, I can correct it. That's mm-hmm. that's fine. Critique it. Like, they asked me, they're <laughs> okay, like, right, submit a bio, yeah. and it's like, you know, that's up there with, like, go around the circle and say something interesting about yourself, or I'm just like, uh, it's too much pressure right now, guys. I'm a bio. You need me to define myself right now, my whole life, into, like, a 36-character thing that you're going to read out in front of the world? Oh, man, I'm just going to... Whatever you have is fine, is, like, where I left it. There is no secret formula for scaling customer support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new HubSpot Service Hub, bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with AI-powered help desk, all so you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. On today's show, we are sitting down and talking about how you build a marketing-first business as an entrepreneur. We're doing that with Sean Purry, who is the co-host of My First Million. He's the founder of Milk Road. He's a serial entrepreneur, marketer extraordinaire. And Sean, we are so happy to have you on Marketing Against the Grain. Thanks for being here. Yeah, glad to be here. Okay, that bio was not so bad. I'm, I'm down with that. Can I say something fun on the podcast about the bio? Yeah. What you said go. really resonates with me, the like trying to create a bio or something for yourself. So sometimes when you go to speak at events, they have like an MC and the MC will come back. This happened to me twice. And they'll say, okay, we're introducing people and we're introducing them by saying like a fun story, <laughs> a fun story that's happened to you. And it's just like minutes before you go on stage. Totally. And twice this has happened to me with pretty big audiences, like a thousand people doing some sort of keynote. And they're like, okay, what's the fun story? And I'm like, I literally have told them twice that it's happened. And I've said, oh, I have dogs. <laughs> and they're like, are you sure that's what you want to use? I'm like, well, I don't you, know. You, what is fun about me? I don't know what's a fun story. you have a fun story though. What's my fun story? Tell me, because then I can use Your it. Your Joe Biden story is a fun story. Oh, my boy, I, I met Joe Biden. Joe Biden has met my dog and met me, so I should tell that one. Oh, it ties yeah, in Joe with Biden the dog Joe Biden stopped thing too. in a park to meet Kieran's dog. <laughs> Dyson, because he I, wanted why to didn't pet I think Kieran's of that? Dog. Wanted to pet my dog, held my dog. Tell the whole story, Kieran. Yeah. Tell Sean the whole story. So he, needs to hear. he came and stayed in this big castle in Ireland. It's, it's where like all of the kind of big politicians come and stay. He was, they came over and there was a big cavalcade driving around the grounds of the castle and you can go there, walk your dogs. And so I was walking my dog, who's a pug, And the cavalcade stops and the door opens and Joe Biden, they're staring at me and the dog. And he's like, I miss my German shepherd. Can I meet your dog? And can I hold your dog? And can I stroke your dog? And then he goes, (laughs) in case I didn't know what was happening, because I'm like, what's happening right now? He goes, oh, I'm Joe Biden, the former vice president of the United States. I'm like, I know. I'm trying to work out why you want to pick up my dog. So then he picks up the dog. And the worst thing about it is pugs have two coats of fur and so they're constantly shedding and he's wearing a black suit so he picks up the dog leaves the dog back down he's just covered in fur and then just drives off and i'm just like so there you go that's a fun that's story for all of the people who want to ask me that should <laughs> you know. be your fun story when you, that should somebody be my asks fun you for story. a Darn. fun story all right come on all right come on okay well no, enough about me we should get on that's to also so <laughs> awesome on joe biden i mean first he's just like can i stroke your dog which is the most joe biden thing ever to say and the second thing totally. is him introducing himself. I'm Joe Biden, former vice president <laughs> of the United States. I, that actually, edit this out. That's my bio. I'm Sean Pierre, former vice president of my high school. 
<laughs> so we want to talk to Sean today, Karen, all about building an audience because Sean, you have built audiences over and over again. And I think you've learned a lot along the way. The first question I'd ask you is, you've sold a bunch of businesses, you host My First Million. Of all the, the audiences, communities you've built over the years, like what's been the hardest? Like what is the hardest thing to promote? Definitely the podcast. Yeah, right? It's so hard. So I've built basically, yeah, you guys know. So, so, so I've built basically, I used to build apps without audience. And then be like, how the hell do I get people to care about this or know about this? And I post it on Product Hunt or I would, you know, send email it to some friends. And I'm like, there was a huge like, then what moment? Like, you know, it's like, I don't know. Like, you know, there was there was no there was no plan behind that. That, that was like, I don't know. Is there some book that tells me how to do this? And so I had gotten into viral marketing and things like that. And I was like, OK, I really think this needs to work. And I'll give you four examples of audience first. So I built an app. And although I guess the long story short is my business partner was a guy who built and sold, and Kieran, you'll know this, a social network called Bebo, which was, mm -hmm. it was the most visited website in Ireland, like more than Google. And in, it was the third biggest social network in the world. So it was MySpace, number one at the time, Facebook, number two, and Bebo, number three. So he ends up selling it for $850 million. And now fast forward years later, I initially worked for him. Then he named me CEO of the company. And I was like, all right, we're working kind of with him. He comes to me one day, says, hey, we can buy Bebo back out of bankruptcy. Like it's going to go bankrupt we can buy the brand back. And I was like, awesome. What are we going to do with it? He's like, I have no idea. And I was like, all right, but like, <laughs> it's a good domain. It's a good name. It's a big email list. Who knows? Like, maybe we can come up with something with it. All right, cool. So attempt number one of hacking audience was go buy a failed internet brand for a million dollars and then see if you can relaunch a new product completely unrelated to the old product using that name and that press story of is Bebo making a comeback? Just like MySpace tried to make a comeback with, I don't right. know if you remember, they hired Justin Timberlake and shit. They like, was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That failed. Next attempt. But in doing that, I caught the attention of this kid who was, I think, 19 or 20 years old, living in the UK. He cold emailed me and said, Hey, my name's Steven. And, you know, here's a little bit about me. I created this like kind of Craigslist for colleges. I really want to come work with you. I heard you bought Bebo back. I just want to work with you on whatever it's going to be. I remember Bebo from when I was a kid. So the million dollar purchase of Bebo, really the most valuable thing was that this kid, Stephen, comes, flies over from the UK and works for me. A lot of people will now know this guy. His name is Stephen Bartlett. He's got a huge podcast called Diary of a CEO. He's what? got a book. I did not know this. <laughs> oh, you're no blowing way. Case. Stephen Bartlett right flew over and worked so I flew with him you. over, who was 19, that 20 years old, and dope. his buddy Dom. They both fly over. Because, you know, like when you're 19, you think it's okay to just like bring a friend. And so he's like, just brings a friend with a <laughs> car to work. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like, it's not a house party, but like, I get it. Um, he treated it a little bit like a house party. So he lived in the office because we didn't have like budget your startup. We, we, we didn't like, I don't know, we didn't know like the proper way to do things. So it was like, you sleep there. And so he slept on this like bed in the <laughs> office and he worked with us. And I thought he was amazing. I thought he was super talented, like really a charismatic guy. Is like, I don't really know what your skills are. Like, maybe it's marketing, I guess. But like, let's just see what happens. So he had like a couple missions. His mission was go get us distribution. Like we did a hack week. We rent a cab and we all go there. But it's like 10 engineers were going to build stuff. One designer is going to design stuff. And then there was me and Steve, which is like, yo, do you also not have skills? He's like, yeah, I mean, either. Like, what do we do all day? Like, they're doing the <laughs> hacking. We're just looking over their shoulder, like pointing things out. And then we were like, I got, we got to be useful in some way. So we promised like, hey, whatever you guys build, we're going to help get it out there. And so I went to Steve. I was like, all right, what's the best way we could do this? And we decided in our genius, we're going to go cold call Logan Paul and get him to promote our thing. Oh, my God. This story this is a great just story. So this fantastic. is attempt number two now. So number one, pay a million dollars for failed internet brand that might get press and have a good domain. 
didn't work. Attempt two was, we'll just cold call Logan Paul. And this is many years ago now, but he, he was still popular. This sounds like a joke. And so we do. Sean and, so, and Steve Bartlett cold call <laughs> Logan Paul. Bartlett. Sounds like literally like a YouTube stand-up. We get his thing. info. I remember Steve goes outside the cabin. He's like, because it's like, I don't know, just like smelled like bad engineer in there. So he goes outside. He calls Logan Paul's manager, who I think was his dad at the time. And he's like, okay, so they're um, like, they're down. If we go to LA, they'll meet with us. And, you know, I'm like, all right, is this really the way? We're like, maybe this is not the way. <laughs> It's like, you know, they wanted a bunch of money and we were like, okay, maybe that's not the answer. But Steve had done something really clever. So the reason I hired him was because I was like, okay, you have no track record, no experience. I like the way you write. Like his writing stood out to me. Like I thought he had like some, some juice to him, but he had told me one other story. I was like, what's the most impressive thing you've done? And he's like, well, to promote my startup, which failed, but I did get growth initially was I realized that. There were a bunch of these like themed Twitter accounts, Twitter pages that were about random meme stuff. And I reached out, I was like, oh, I follow them. And so does every other kid I know. So let me ask them to promote my app. And they did. And it worked. And I was able to do that for like a few hundred dollars budget because I had no money. And I was like, wow, you got like, you know, tens of thousands of people, if not a hundred thousand people to sign up for your thing off of like a couple hundred bucks budget. Like, that's pretty interesting. What do you mean theme pages? Mm. What, what, are, what are these meme pages? He's like, oh, like, look at this page. He's like, and now I own them. He's like, I basically, I found out it was just another kid like me that ran this page. Like they were 17, 18 years old, sitting in mom's basement and made this page. It was awesome, but they didn't make any money doing it. So they didn't really know what to do with it. So I started offering them like $1,000 to buy your page and they would sell it to me. So he was rolling up these pages and when he couldn't buy it, he would partner with them and hire them in to be part of his like conglomerate. And he's like, you bring your page and now you work for the team. And so he had accumulated this giant social like net of accounts and they would be like, freshman problems or Harry Potter says, and like, it's memes about Harry Potter or whatever, like it could be anything, <laughs> like, memes. overheard on campus, like things like that. And so I was like, that's really smart. And I think really cool that you did that. And so I was like, okay, whatever. That was his impressive thing. So then I was like, Hey, can we just use your thing? And he's like, yeah, I think it'll work for an app. Why not? You know, it worked for my website. Why, why wouldn't it work for an app? And so we did a marketing campaign called a thunderclap, which was, we got all of his pages on the same day to start talking about our app. But the key was Steve's genius was that he was like, I was like, okay, cool. So we're going to use this link with a trackable attribution, blah, blah, blah. He's like, no links. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, <laughs> links aren't cool. And I, I tell the story on MFM of like, we had gone to this high school classroom and I told people to download this link and some kid in the class goes, links are gay. And I like, <laughs> and I'd never been so shook in my life. I was like, what? Like, how do I respond to that? And also wait, links are gay. Like, what do you mean? But if Steve had the same insight. He was like, links are not cool. Like we can't put, if you put a link in a thing, immediately it changes the nature of it. And I was like, okay, so just say how great it is. He goes, no, that also sounds like you're just selling it. He goes, what we're going to say is, oh my God, I haven't gotten anything done today because I'm so addicted to this stupid app. Mm. And I was like, what? And he's like, I was like, so no link. And you're going to kind of insult it. He's like, yeah, you know, we're going to post this meme. That's like, if one more friend tells me to download blah, 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 I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to shoot them. And I was like, so you're kind of complaining about it? It's like, yeah, I'm complaining that everybody's talking about it. I'm complaining that everybody won't shut up about it. And then he's like, I'm going to do that on all these pages at once. And then people, when they scroll their timeline, they're going to hear the same app that they never heard of three times. Mm -hmm. And the story in each one is like, dude, what is this app everyone's talking about? Where did this come from? I'm so annoyed by this. And they're going to go to the app store and search the name. So we did that and we launched this app. 
And we did like half a million downloads in like, I don't know, five days or something crazy at the time with no marketing spend. It was just through this one thing. And we were the number one ranked app on the app store. So in the entire free app store, we were number one just through this method. And then like, you know, fast forward a couple months and I was like, okay, number one, that really worked. This audience distribution (laughs) hack was like really powerful. Uh, Number two, there's something to the like fake authenticity of like, you're talking about it because you're paid to do it essentially, but you talk about it in a way that brings people in and makes them curious and doesn't just push a product at them because people will, it's too noisy. Mm-hmm. The world will just ignore that now. We're, we're all like too used to that. Like the raising your hand and saying, try me, try me. This is good. And it's like, no, no, no. That's if you haven't to do that, you're not cool. And so that was the second lesson I took out of it was like that counterintuitive method he used. And three was this guy, Steve, and like this process they're doing. This is more valuable than our app because our app was like churning users like crazy. Like it was like a novelty. People liked it for like 10 days and then they got bored of it and moved on. And I was like, our app sucks. That thing is kind of cool. And I went to Steve and I was like, you should just do that. And he's like, yeah, I think I should just do this. And they created an agency called Social Chain and like (laughs) Social Chain went on to become whatever, like a, a big deal. And now Steve's like, you know. I call him the Black Gary V. He's like, you know, promoted himself into like this character now. Yeah. And so that led me to the next lesson. So one was this audience and the way you talk about a product really matters. The authenticity and the, the nature of the conversation, the trust of that page kind of matters. As I saw him build his agency all through personal vlog content, I was like, wow, this guy's basically like, on one hand, I thought, here's Steve blowing money again. Because I had seen him. Every time I give him money, he would like go party and have no money again. And so I was like, (laughs) when he started doing the agency, I was like, dude, he's just blowing money again. He got one client and then he spent it all on like getting a sick wardrobe and hiring this guy to follow him around with a camera. I'm like, dude, that's how much you paying this guy like that? You know, what are you doing? He knew what he was doing. He was like, no, I'm going to build my personal brand. I'm going to make myself look awesome. And I'm going to go all in on this content. And he was basically like that vlog didn't do huge numbers. But what it did do is it got the right people to watch, which was the next lesson. Like, how do you get the right audience to watch? Because for him, every client he got was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this one camera guy following him around was a great investment of money, actually. And he built himself up the same way Gary Vee did. So I saw all that happening. I'm in my like early 20s, mid 20s at this stage. I'm 25, 26, 27 during this part, maybe. And that's when I decided like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I was like, but I'm not the time. I'm not like Steve. I'm not like super like handsome, suave guy. Like with, who's got the British accent and just everything he says, everything that comes out of his mouth just sounds 50% smarter because it's the accent. Totally. I was like, yeah, I got, I got a face for podcasting. So let me basically go to a medium that suits me and try to build an audience. And people know about my first million, but they don't know about the two or three false starts that I had before that trying this. Before we finally hit on something that worked, and then I was able to build a brand on podcast, Twitter, newsletter. I think those are the main ones. Those now I've built big audiences on all three of those to the tune of like the podcast does twenty million plus downloads a year. The newsletters are in the hundreds of thousands. My Twitter is like four hundred thousand ish. So those were like pretty big and built relatively easily, and have proven to be very very valuable. In that I've been able to spin off multiple multiple businesses that do millions in profit off of those audiences along the way. So that's been like kind of the long story that I've really never told, but you know, you guys get the story. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network 
the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest-growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love this show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. There's a couple of great lessons in that, Stephen. It was like he deeply understood his audience, right? Like, first of all, knew that links were uncool, knew how to talk to them, knew how to frame something. But then there's like copywriting. Like, that's a big part, I think, of your success is like writing, but like being able to like craft a tweet so they seem organic, seem like completely on the opposite end of the spectrum of like what everyone, what everyone else is writing. But I would love to kind of touch on why do you think podcasts, like from all the things you've grown, right? You've built newsletter, sold newsletter, you've built your Twitter follower, you've built like audience all over the place. And you mentioned like podcast is the hardest thing to grow. I agree. Like of all the things it's that I've tried to grow grind. in business or anywhere else, like podcast is the hardest. Why do you think it is the hardest? I'd love to like just go around the room and figure out like, why is this such a hard medium to grow? Well, I believe there's three engines of growth. Number one is a viral engine, meaning and viral in a really specific definition. Viral does not mean people choose to tell their friends. It's the act of using your product naturally spreads like a contagion, like an actual virus to other people. Right. Podcasts are not that. They're solo. Like literally you wear them in headphones when you're by yourself, not talking to anybody, not doing anything. Like <laughs> ultimate single player experience. It's the ultimate single right. player experience. So like music is super viral because you people play music at clubs or parties or gyms and you hear something, you say, what's that? And then the other person says, oh, you got to check this thing out. And it's like a really short thing. It's three minutes. So it's easy for them to try. And then when they try it, they play it all the time and they repeat the same thing. And music is super viral. Podcast is a type of audio content. That's the ultimate single player experience. So viral growth out the window, not going to happen. You know, it's a one hour long solo experience. So, okay. Second engine of growth is not viral, but paid. Okay, cool. Paid works in many, many different things. You put money in. And you get money out and hopefully you got a little more money out so you can reinvest it to more money in, right? This is how every e-commerce brand grows is they spend money on Facebook ads, get revenue, take that money, put it back into Facebook ads and do it over and over again. Can't do that with podcasts either. Where do you even advertise a podcast? And again, because the barrier to entry is like podcasts work because when they hit, it's because it's a, such a niche interest that it's like mm -hmm. a hundred exactly. out of 10 of like personalization, <laughs> but that means it's not yes. good for broad audiences. It's also not easy to try. Most people don't even know what a podcast is. And then if you do know what a podcast is, do you actually have a habit of listening to it? If you don't have a habit of listening to it, they're so long and involved to get to value that they're great in certain use cases, like you're killing time on a commute or you're at a boring job and you want something in your ears. You want to hang out with some people digitally. They're awesome at that, but they're terrible for the paid kind of acquisition funnel. You don't really know where to advertise. And even if you did, the conversion rate's too low. And then you don't make money off of it. Like the ad revenue you generate <laughs> on the back end comes later and is small compared to how much it costs to acquire a user. So paid doesn't work. So you've lost two of your three possible growth engines. Well, it still does grow and how. It's basically the third engine of growth, which is the sticky growth engine. This is all from Eric Reese, by the way, uh, who, who wrote this in Lean Startup. Yeah. So the sticky engine of growth is basically when somebody uses you, 
they really use you. They just stick with it. They just their engagement deepens the more they do it. And over time, they have developed such a bond that they actually do voluntarily go tell other people about it, who slowly but surely, if they hear about it a few times, will check you out. It's a very slow, it's like annual compound interest of like 5%. And that's how podcasts grow. So the reason it's hard to grow them is because you can only try to create a really sticky, awesome experience that people are going to voluntarily go tell people about. And you got to do it slow. You got to get rich slow, basically, when it comes to the audience game of podcasts. That's why it's hard. I said something earlier where I don't know if you agree, Kip, but which is if you can grow a podcast audience, you can probably grow anything specifically for that reason, which is if you want to build something back to front, which is like start a distribution and then build into something because anything with inbuilt distribution is going to be easier to actually grow and build. And if you start a podcast, you don't really have an inbuilt distribution mechanism. You just have like the grind. <laughs> like you start well, you start with the grind. Well, hold on. There's one other thing about a podcast that, Sean, I don't think you covered that I believe. Like when you're building a product, right? Like let's say you've got an e-commerce product, right? And you're like, cool, I got this six set of shoes that I'm going to go and market to everybody. People buy it. And you know what they do? They leave you some f-ing reviews. And you're like, oh, they hate my shoelaces or they hate my soul or whatever. Nobody leaves you podcast yeah. reviews, first of all. Like, I remember when we first got on YouTube and you could actually have comments on episodes. I was like, oh, I actually know what people totally. think. Like, can, I right. can actually have a little bit of feedback loop. Podcasts are so low on feedback that you can actually do it for a long time poorly <laughs> because you don't, and you it's, actually it's can't a strength get the and loop a of like, oh, I got this Early right. on, it's yeah. a strength that nobody can see your view count. Yes. You can barely even see your view count. Totally. It's great that you don't post something and get two comments because you'd just be discouraged at that point. Early on, it's a strength. Later, it's a weakness, which is why for MFM, we push everybody now to our YouTube channel, even though though it's not like as sticky as the audio downloads are. We literally get paid less for our YouTube things, but we still push people there. Why? Because ultimately, I want to build the best product. And to build the best product, that feedback loop matters. And I think, and it's two-way, right? Like, then I can comment back and re-engage with them. And so once you have enough volume, that becomes like very motivating to go look at and to, to learn from. And you have enough signal there that you can actually learn something. And so at the beginning, I think it's actually a bit of a strength, even though you're right, like you don't have the feedback of what's broken. But also you can get guests to come on your podcast even when you have like 100 listeners because they can't see that there's only 100 listeners. Right. It's like this op- exactly. the opacity like saves you from your own judgment. But then later you want to get that feedback loop rolling. Podcast is also the thing where you have to learn to have real personality. Like I think that is going to be more prevalent in how you build any kind of company that you have to have personality when you're brand because everything is starting to look the same. Look at Twitter and threads. Like everything is becoming about the owner. Like we see... Twitter today is like Elon and Threads is Zuck, right? And that has like, they're st- it's starting to become tribalism. Like you're either in the Elon camp, you're in the Zuck camp, they're going to get into a cage fight. Like there is a thing to be said that business is going to be much more like that as everything starts to look the same, being able to like right. have an online personality and bring that personality into your brand. It's very much Yankees and Red Sox now and you get the sports tribalism. Whose team are you on? And then you kind of need to blindly follow them for a bit. That actually makes it all a little bit more interesting as well. well I, I guess my, my question is like, what's different from the Sean who was hanging out with Steve Bartlett, figuring out like the earliest lessons of marketing to the Sean now? Like, do you feel like you've manufactured your storytelling and personality because that's part of marketing? Or do you feel like, oh, no, I've just like learned some stuff and I've got some better skills now? Like, how do you think that evolution happened? Well, how it happened is through trial and error, of course, banging your head against the wall. <laughs> yeah. That's how it happened. 
But there's sort of an intelligent way to do trial and error. And uh, that's the part nobody tells you, right? It's like, because I meet a bunch of entrepreneurs that are like, yeah, I've been, I'm like, how long have you been doing this? Like six years. And I'm like, wow, but you're still doing the same shit. Like, you know, you're not like, um, it's like going to a gym and it's like, yeah, I'm getting it. I, I come to the gym 65 straight days and you're like, cool, but you're not really sweating and you're not like, actually your form sucks. Like it's not getting better each time. Like it's okay to suck at the beginning. It's the rate of learning and the rate of improvement that matters. And so the way I got better at things was simply, I got sick of failing. I, I literally failed for my first eight straight years of entrepreneurship, like, which is my entire career up till that point. There wasn't like something good before that either. It was just like, <laughs> I'm going to go do this. It's going to be awesome. It's the next big thing. And then I said that for eight straight years and proved myself wrong and embarrassed myself in front of everybody I, I know and who loves me. Yeah. So, you know, like that was the start of my career. <laughs> and at some point, you know, you humble yourself and you start becoming thirsty for knowledge about like what does actually work. And what am I doing that's working? What are other people doing that's working? And how do I get more like the shit's working than not? That applied to both project selection, which is something that nobody talks about that I think is so oh, critical. So important. What you work on, what you choose to work on is the most important decision, more important than really kind of anything else. Then it's the how, the approach. So what kind of energy intensity, creativity process do you do to actually like improve something and get it to work? And then like, you know, capturing value on the other side, like there's a lot of things that you do that you're like, oh, great. Even if you won, you kind of lose, like there's nothing on the other side of that. And that's okay if you know that going in. And in fact, that's how I started the podcast. Like I have this doc that I wrote the day I started the podcast, which was, I have this thing I call the kickoff doc. I do before I do, I do any project. I have my one page kickoff that I write for myself to give myself clarity on what am I actually trying to do here? And I started the podcast basically the day after we had sold our company. I was walking with a friend and I remember we, there's just these, like, you know, what was that phrase where it's like, sometimes, you know, it's like years happen in days. That's what happened to me. Yes. A year happened in one like evening. And it was like, what is the year? It was just this, we started walking and we just like, we didn't say anything to each other, but we were like, it was clear. Like we're not done walking until we're done talking. And we walked for like <laughs> four hours straight through downtown in the mission. Like it's a miracle. We didn't even get like stabbed along the way. We're just walk, <laughs> pacing these streets over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. No water, no bathroom, no food, no, no, no. And mm -hmm. we're just talking about like life, what we want out of life. What, what's the right way. And you almost like work yourself into a bit of a frenzy, which is awesome. You almost ramp yourself up to the point where you have the juice to make a real decision. And I remember saying at that time, I was like, I think what Tim Ferriss does is awesome. And I don't know how to do it. Plus and one. I'm very different than Tim. Like he's introverted. I'm like, more extroverted. He's like super meticulous. I can care less about the details. Like we're very different people, but I was like, how cool is it that he basically just gets to be professionally curious. And every day a million people wake up and put Tim in their ear balls. And I remember saying this, like, I mm -hmm. want to be in a million people's ear balls in the morning. Like that is my goal. That's the thing I think is the best. I don't have a plan of how to get there. I don't know what that's worth. I don't know if that's a better idea than starting a business. I just know that I want it more. I want that thing to happen. So the next day I was like, I'm creating a podcast. And I wrote down the doc and I remember being like, immediately doubt crept in. And I was like, well, probably not going to have a million people listening to this. In fact, probably not even 10,000 people are going to listen to this. Like probably it's just me and my mom who listened to this thing. And I was like, all right, well, you know what? Even if that happens, it's worth doing because I got to swing the bat. I got to know, I got to try. And also I think podcasts are cool because I realized that you can meet awesome people and have them guest on your podcast, even when you have like pretty much no listenership. They'll take the time. 
And I was like, I don't even drink coffee, yeah. for example. So I was like, I hate asking people for coffee meetings. F- I'm going to just invite them onto my podcast and have a long conversation with them. And yes. that will be awesome. Mm-hmm. And if, that, if that's all that comes out of this is I try it and I just get to have these awesome conversations, like, you know, a hundred awesome conversations, it'll be worth it. And I said, I'm willing to lose $10,000. So my, my specific stated plan was basically lose $10,000, have a hundred awesome conversations. That's the floor. And the ceiling is like, maybe I'll get lucky and I'll actually like fall into an audience along the way. And it basically started as the former and it became the latter as I went. But I kind of had that mentality going in of like, I knew this was the right project for me because there was no cooler thing I could think of in the world. Like some people want to go launch rockets. Like I don't want that. That's not my, (laughs) what's my version of a rocket to Mars was what if I could just like get to be a thinker? Like what if I got to just be curious, learn things and then share the coolest stuff I learned literally just by talking. That's to me sounds like the dream job. And then once I had that realization, I was willing to like go after it pretty hardcore. One of the things that people really undervalue is repetition. And so remember, it's when, I, when I first got into marketing, I was like this failed software engineer, always wanted to like be a builder, was not smart enough. So I go do something else. And kind of like my first couple of years in marketing was like in the kind of more shady area of marketing. So I always tell Kip this. I spent like a lot of more shady area. Come on. You were totally shady in the shady area of marketing. And so I spent a lot of my hours, like every night I was on the warrior forum, like Frank Kearns, all of the like best copywriters. Like there's a guy called some even page, like all of these incredible copywriters. And so I met a bunch of people like direct marketers who were making a ton of money and they would all go to this conference in Texas. And one of my contacts there went to that conference and they're all like selling affiliate businesses or on flippit.com, like doing all, all of this kind of crazy stuff. He came back and I was like, oh, like, what are these people like? Like, not the Frank Kearns and all these, like, just like the people who go to those like events and, he, and they're make, like all millionaires. And he's like, these are some of the dumbest people you will ever meet. I was like, <laughs> like, like tell me more because I want to be like that well off and that successful. He goes like, they have found the thing and they are willing to just like repeat the thing forever. If it works forever, they will repeat the thing forever. Even though it's just like click the button, click the button, click the button, click the button. Now that's like the extreme example of that. But there's something to be said, which is like trial and error, but you have to like fall in love with the process. And part of the process is just like repetition, like find something, grind it out, find something, grind it out. And I think a lot of people who do not succeed in the way that you have succeeded or others have succeeded will not get on, first of all, talk themselves out of play in the game. Second of all, not do the trial and error or even have those feedback loops. But third of all, just not persevere with repetition. And what about you guys? So like you guys are doing this podcast. I've seen you guys doing it. How long have you been doing this for now? A little over a year. Okay, a little over a year. I would guess that like by any conventional metric, the viewership or listenership of this podcast is not what you had put as your like an A plus goal, like your hopes and dreams of like, if this all works out because I have no visibility on the numbers, I just kind of like, it's almost like the dog that doesn't bark. It's like, if I don't see it at the top of the charts, or I don't hear about it like a ton from everybody, then you sort of assume it's it's like most pieces of content. It's like somewhere in the whitewash. It's not like, hasn't broken out yet. Like we all know that Alex Hermosi like broke out in the last couple of years. Cool. Like you see that, we all yeah. kind of saw it. It's clear that something's a breakout. And this is kind of like a hits game. Like you're, you're either a breakout or you're not a breakout. There's not this like long linear... There's not many, many, many winners. There's like few people who win really big. And then there's a lot of things that don't win that big. So kudos to you guys. Cause I guess like you're still doing it and it seems like you still enjoy it. Is that true? And if so, what's that been like willpower or something else that's let you keep going? When we started out at this, we were like, look, we're going to get to a million monthlies and it's going to take us 36 months. Like you said, you were like, Hey, I started the podcast with my one pager of what we're going to get at. We kind of did the opposite of like, 
we know where we want to get to. We kind of have a rough time period of how long we think it's going to take us. We also had the advantage of seeing your growth chart. Every, we've seen everybody's growth yeah. charts in the podcast game, and they are actually very gradual until you break out. And it normally takes two to four years to really break out. And so we basically committed like, hey, first of all, we like to make stuff. Right. Second of all, we like each other. We want to talk and hang out. We're like talking to each other on every week anyway. Why not record it and talk to some of our favorite people, most interesting people, a little bit of what you said. And three, like we're just obsessed with growing something. And we knew this was the hardest challenge. Like ROI for our time, we are idiots for doing this. Yeah, that's what I meant. We could make way more money with the time we spend into this doing literally almost anything else. And I would say that we are dumb for doing this, but we do it because I think there's a little pride in doing something that is so, so hard. So I love what you just said. Three points came to mind. One, a little pro tip. If you're a pretty analytical, intellectual person, one of the best signals is all of the logical reasons tell me not to do this, and I still want to. Lean into those, I've learned. I've learned to lean <laughs> yes. into those that like, even when the numbers don't pencil out, but I'm still interested, that's actually where some of the best opportunities are when you lean into them because actually these unforeseen things happen and it's really saying you're not doing it for some future payoff. You're doing it because you actually want to do it. And when you do something because you actually want to do it, you get an immediate payoff, which is way better than a future payoff. So, you know, like right. this applies to pretty much everything except for like drugs and junk food. So, you know, like lean, lean into that instinct <laughs> when it's like, hard effort that you're still willing to do, even though the back of the napkin math tells you like, wait, don't we have like 15 better, more efficient options? Yeah. So that's a signal. And the other, the other way, if you're not data oriented at all, or you're super gut driven, you should probably do some back of the napkin stuff and then be like, does that turn me on or off? And like, I don't, you know, you have to think of it the other way, but this audience probably who listens to this is probably all wired like you where, totally. where, you know, you do the math first, you know, when you go into things. So that's, that's the first thing that reminded me. Second is, Beginners think things will always happen faster than they, than they do. And experienced people understand that greatness always takes time. And so it's just good to go into things with the long-term time horizon and expectation. And the best way I've heard this put is the Naval quote where he said, impatience with action, patience with results. Like if I could get kind of one thing tattooed on my arm, that would be the phrase because I think that best summarizes like a winning formula for people. Impatience with action, patience with results. The third thing I was going to say is that it sounds like you guys do this because you enjoy doing it. And I would guess that let's say, let's say I told you for sure the podcast is never going to grow bigger than it is right now. It will always stay the same size, regardless of it. Would you still record next week and the week after that and the week after that? I don't know. It's an honest question. Would you? Would you no. say, Karen? No, f no. <laughs> no. I would That's it. interesting to me. I have a belief that. I remember I said project selection is the most important thing. So then how do you get good at project selection? So I've started to have these like little heuristics or little questions that like help differentiate a bad project from an okay project, from a good project, from a great project, from the perfect project. And at the perfect project <laughs> level, it's basically like a, a career test version of this is if you knew you were going to get paid $5 million a year, regardless of what you did, what would you go do? Because it's this mental way of stripping away the variable rewards, like the likelihood of success, like the doubt of, am I going to succeed or fail and money, which are two really, really strong drivers. And so if you're actually trying to get to the bottom of like, what do I, what do I, what do I have the most enjoyment and fulfillment doing? These types of questions matter. And so it's interesting you said that for me, let's say you took me and Sam, let's say we, we were getting exactly the same number of downloads you guys were getting for MFM. And I knew it was never going to grow. 
we would still record. I would still record at least. I, I can't speak for Sam, but like I would still do the show. And I don't mean that to be kind of like noble. It's just like, that's how I knew this is worth doing is because it didn't matter if the show was going to grow or not, which ironically means you're going to do it a ton and enjoy doing it. And it gives you the best shot at growing, you know, when you do something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm obsessed with questions. The questions you ask yourself, I think are so underrated and nobody teaches you how to ask yourself better questions. And so that's one that's been very helpful to me. So I wanted to share it. I like that this suddenly has turned into therapy session with Sean, Kieran. <laughs> what Sean's really uncovered is that all we actually care about is winning. Well, like, that's and my point. Like, we would not do it because we set out for I something. I can't do anything unless competing like and so our entire and, relationship and, and, kieran you and i is predicated is based on that. competition like literally everything we do is predicated on like oh we are going to accomplish this thing that we want to accomplish and like the journey there we have a lot of fun but like if we weren't trying to get there like we wouldn't do it uh, that's a problem for me in general oh, like i can't here. enjoy something unless it's going towards something that i'm trying to like take a well, box on the reason i think this is sort of interesting is because let's say somebody's listening to this and there's like the premise was audience first to build business right that's kind of like the initial premise yeah. and we can go into more tactical stuff there but i think the first fundamental thing is are you if you're going to choose this route in my opinion the only reason to do it is because like you're willing to do the audience building part for a long time even when there's no results right. because otherwise you're yes. better off just trying to market the business directly than do an audience first because it's then going to help me launch this other thing. Building an audience is going to be harder than just building a business or a product and launching it. It's like Hollywood. like it's very, You have far fewer chances of making it that way. And it's usually slower, like we talked about with like, you know, it's hard to grow, let's say a podcast, for example. So I think it's, I hear a lot of people be like, oh, I'm doing audience first. And I find that their thinking is quite shallow in that they think that's going to make it easier. Actually, in my opinion, it's not necessarily easier or harder. It's like just different. And secondly, like their expectations on how long it takes and how much time they'd be willing to put in without having massive distribution is skewed. And that's why so many people go and give up because they had the wrong mindset going in. That's why I think like you should enjoy the content creation stuff so much that you would be willing to do it even if it didn't work out. That's kind of like, those are the people that survive. I would, no matter what, the result create content like this is an outlet like one thing that yeah. that is hard to do this when you have like full-time roles and doing everything else is like people don't estimate the amount of work you need to put into a podcast so i think regardless of like we were doing this or something else kip and i would likely do something around content it's, it's a creative outlet the other thing around podcasts which is like interesting is i suspect like a podcast audience if you have quarter of a million monthly listeners in the podcast, it's like a million people reading your blog. Like the actual level of engagement, the quality of the right. audience is much, much better than like some of the other kind of mediums you could grow. So I have a formula for cool. this that I use for my businesses. I basically, it has nothing to like, basically everybody else measures on size. And again, ask yourself a better question. Like, why do I actually think that this audience is valuable? Right. I think this audience is valuable because exactly. two reasons, typically it's the quality of the person. So like who is the audience matters. It's not like one view is not one view. One listen is not one listen. Like who is the listener matters a lot. Who is the viewer matters a lot. And the second thing is how much trust do I have with them, which is proportionate to your, to your influence over them. So I call it the trust equation. So for me, when I build audience, I am trying to maximize my trust equation. So it's basically the following three variables. It's the quality of the audience times the number of those people times the amount that they trust me, like how much trust I can build through this thing. So for example, TikTok, you can get huge numbers, but your numbers are going to be, you know, maybe not the actual people who you think are your tribe, your demographic, you know, like a teenage kid is not the same viewer as like, you know, CEO of some company. 
And third, like, uh, you know, how much trust am I going to be able to build through this? Well, like, no, I'm just going to get like random views. I'm going to get seven seconds of their attention. Then they're going to swipe versus a podcast versus whatever. And I think this is the great arb for both creators and marketers. So the great arb for creators is once you realize it's about the trust equation, you will choose a different strategy. You'll be like, I don't care if yes. I get 100,000 or 10,000. I care that I get the right okay. 10,000 and that they trust me a lot. And then I'll stack the number slowly. That's fine. Same thing for marketers. Like I remember, so our first company got bought by Twitch. I remember seeing this company, G Fuel. Have you guys ever heard of G Fuel? No. I don't no. think most people know about it outside of the gaming Twitch ecosystem. So I think it stands for Gamer Fuel or something like that. Basically, these guys tried to create like Red Bull or Monster Energy. And they just built the whole brand on top of Twitch. And what I saw was crazy. So basically, they came in. And they saw the ARB and the ARB was that every traditional brand marketer was just like, how many followers does this person have on Instagram or how many views or subscribers do they have on YouTube? What they didn't realize that is that a Twitch streamer is live in their bedroom, unedited, unscripted for hours. Like the average streamer, average like successful streamer is streaming like six to eight hours a day. And viewers are watching for like Twitch doesn't have that many people, but it has a lot of watch time. And so like mm -hmm. as a social network, it's, you know, 10 or 20 times smaller than a YouTube or an Instagram. But the watch time is actually really close. The time spent because people will go, they'll flip it on and they'll just watch the streamer live, unscripted, unedited in their bedroom, not putting on, you know, like any inauthentic, you know, appearances for like hours straight every single day. And so what they underestimated was the amount of trust that was getting built up. And so I saw brands go on Twitch and get the most insane ROI. And literally the only thing holding them back was that like the bigger the brand or the bigger the budget, the less the execs were familiar with Twitch or understood it, or they would go look at it and be like this. Mm -hmm. And like, there was a lot of like, kind of like potentially like, what if they just say the wrong thing? Or what if we can't track the clicks? And it's like, mm -hmm. it didn't matter. So this company G Fuel comes out and they basically do the following. They go to like five Twitch streamers who again, were heavily underpriced assets at the time. And I think right now, this is still true for Twitch, but less so than it was five years ago when this was happening. It's still true for podcasters, but less so than maybe three or four years ago when, when this was yeah. happening, where the trust is so high and the level of influence is so high of that personality because they're spending hours a week talking in plain English in like their, their natural voice. And then they do their own ad reads or they use the products like on air. The trust that gets built up from that is so disproportionate compared to like a tweet that gets a million impressions, but it means nothing. A TikTok that gets, right. you know, 600,000 views, but means nothing in terms of the trust and influence. And so I saw these guys go from like zero to 40 million in sales in like 12 months, literally by just handing these <laughs> streamers like this drink and putting the streamer's face on it. They put this, they like gave them like a shaker, like a, a bottle where you put the powder and you mix the water. And so they gave him their own brand of shakers. Like this guy gets the red one and his face is on it. This guy gets the blue and his face is on it. And like, there was no marketing spend beyond that. <laughs> and these guys raced to 40 billion <laughs> and most people have never heard of them. And I saw that over and over again on Twitch where I was like, wow, as a creator, you actually need to be optimizing for trust. And then as a right. marketer, you need to be like looking for which assets are like underpriced because they have more trust than their headline number. And that's what I started using for like Milk Road and things like that. When I grew my next business is my our e-com business today. This is like a technique we use to grow because we just get more bang for our buck. John, you've talked about product selection and you've talked about the questions you ask yourself. I want to know what questions do you ask yourself when you're considering walking away from something? When you should say, hey, you know, like grinding it out is not the answer. Yeah. Like there are a lot of people watching this who 
probably should walk away from something. And, and what should they ask themselves? So I'll first give my predisposition. My predisposition is to walk away sooner rather than later. Some people are wired to just like stick with a thing. I'm more wired to quit or give up on a thing to go do something else. So I kind of have to ask myself different questions to almost keep myself in the game, whereas other people need to ask themselves different questions to talk some sense into themselves leaving. I would say generally what I see, because I've invested in, let's say, 100 startups, talked to maybe thousands of entrepreneurs. Generally, people stick with things for way too long. And you hear the perseverance stories when they work. And so it's like this like survivorship bias where it's like Pinterest wasn't growing. And the guy kept the, the, the Pinterest is my favorite example because it's like had no traction. He kept going and he used to hustle. He used to go to Apple stores. I don't know if you heard the story. He used to go to Apple stores and change yeah. the homepage yeah. to Pinterest.com one at a time, like 14 laptops. And I'm like, are you f- kidding me? That like, what a stupid thing to do. What a waste of time. That is not why Pinterest succeeded. If it succeeded, it was not because he went to the Apple store and changed 12 laptops. Like great story, terrible advice to follow. And so you got to really differentiate between like what makes for a good story versus like what makes for actual winning. So I would say most people stick with things for too long. Quitting is underrated. Your time is what's finite. And the number of projects or possibilities is infinite. So it's crazy that people spend all of their time on one project when projects are infinite and time is finite. You just got to like understand the value of each one of those and take it really, really seriously. The thing I've found that works for me is at the beginning of a project, your risk is judging it too early. So I think it's great to go in eyes wide open. So my first step when I do projects, I talk to other people who have done things like this. I just try to get a general sense of like, how does the average successful person's journey go? Like you talked about, like you can see in your dashboard from like the HubSpot Podcast Network, what is the average successful podcast? How long does it take? And you want to look at the average, including failures. You want to look at the average successful one. That gives you like, if this works, it's probably going to take some time. Like, and how much time and what is oh, yeah. what is like the first milestones look like? I, so I do that. I go talk to you. I literally will go hang out with them. Be like, do I even want your day? Like, do I even want this goal? Because like, you'd be like, <laughs> That's good one. once we got acquired by Twitch, I was like, oh, this goal I've had about building a billion dollar social product and being the CEO. I was like, dude, I would hate Emmett's job right now. Like, this sucks. Winning would be losing. And like, that's pretty valuable to find out earlier before you spend 10 years trying to achieve it. So figuring out what you want is important. Then look at the average successful person. Then you like say, all right, I'm going to give myself 90 days where I'm not going to worry. Justin Mayers has this concept of uh, Sam as it's called worry time. Basically, you schedule some worry time for the future. Like in in 60 days, I'm going to do the assessment, but I'm not going to like plant the seed. Then tomorrow, dig up the seed. Like, is it growing? It's growing. And like, because that doesn't work. That's definitely how seeds don't grow. And so like Correct. plant the seed, water it for 90 days, and then take a look at it to see if it's growing. And so like, I'll do that with projects. I won't give up too early because I'll set some worry time and say, here's what I think we should be doing then. And it's okay if I'm over or under that. Like if I'm under it, I could still keep going, but I'll just know that I'll say, hey, I'm going to keep going, even though the evidence is telling me no. I'm just going to say that out loud. And if that feels right to me to keep going, even though the data, I'm not going to do what most people do, which is delude themselves. They'll be like, Oh, it's going great. It's like, it's not going great, dude. You're not, you're like latching onto this one signal. You want to have a realistic view. And then if you decide I'm going to keep going in the face of that, that's totally fine. I just want to be real about it. And then when it comes time later, how the questions I ask myself, should I quit or should I keep going is if you're having that conversation, it's probably because it's not working. And you basically have to ask yourself, knowing what I know now, like at the beginning, I had a bunch of belief. What I don't want to do is be held hostage by my initial conviction. Because some people have this deep desire to be, what's it called, like congruent with it or like, you know, continuous with their Mm -hmm. identity there, what they told people and what they thought before. They don't want to admit that they're wrong. I know I'm wrong more than half the time. So like, that's easy. So all I have to do is say, what do I know now that I didn't know then? And do I believe more now 
in this is valuable to do, this is possible to do, and that this method I'm using is going to get me there. Like, do I believe more in those statements, less or the same? And the answer should rarely ever be the same, like if the results are not coming. And so that's the question I ask myself usually, I don't know, something like six months to a year later. And I just had that honest conversation with myself. And I've done that so many times. I know how easy it is to bullshit people, most of all yourself. And I just try to avoid that at all costs because especially marketers, marketers are great at bullshit. And so you have to be sure you're not marketing to yourself. You know, you need to be real with yourself. My partner sometimes goes, are you marketing me right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not marketing you. That's hilarious. Uh, that was an awesome kind of framework to close out, Sean. I know we're at time, so we'll let you get to your busy day. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us for an hour. We really appreciate it. Awesome, guys. This was fun.